0: and the reading that Jason just did for us is going to help us. Uh, We're going to see an illustration, in a sense, of that passage. We'll explain more of that in a minute, but uh, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but we're going to look at chapter 3, and we'll start just reading just to give you a sampling of what the chapter uh, has in it. This is Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. By the way, what he's describing now is he's in the north uh, west corner of, this, of the broken down walls of Jerusalem and he is describing walking around this wall as each individual and various people are participating in the rebuilding. Now the sons of Hasaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars and next to them, Mermoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz made repairs and next to him Meshallam, the son of Berechiah, the son of here we go, all these names. Um, Mes- uh, Meshezabel made repairs, and next to him Zadok, the son of Baana, also made repairs. And moreover, next to him the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. And Joedah, the son of Paseah, and Meshullam the son of Besodiah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And so you get an idea of the kind of content uh, found in this particular chapter. Having read that chapter, and that is our text for this morning, uh, we need prayer uh, that God would help us find insight as to what he would have for us in this text. So let's pray. Father, we know that all scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable. And so, Father, we come to a portion of your word where it has many difficult names in it and uh, different places that we're not real familiar with. And we pray that you would help us to gain insight as to why and what purpose this serves to us and why it's a part of the bigger story of what you accomplished in that period of time. And so, Father, give us eyes to see Christ, to see the hope of Christ in this passage and to see the joy of knowing your Holy Spirit has something for us. Again as a result, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was waiting this week to make a visit of our dear sister Carol Clark, I'm in the hospital, and I had to be delayed for a period of time. They were uh, taking care of her, and so I'm standing there, just in the hallway. Someone was in the waiting room, couldn't go there. So I'm just standing in the hallway watching what goes on in a hospital. And I got to thinking, which I do every so often. And as I'm looking around, a hospital, in order to provide quality health care, must and requires a long list of people. People who perform a number of diverse jobs, a number of different responsibilities that must be carried out, otherwise the care is just not there. So I started thinking, who all does this hospital employ? They employ nurses and aides housekeepers pharmacists doctors security personnel maintenance repairmen administrators dietitians people who cook in the kitchen and various kitchen staff the people who bring the food up to the room i saw them delivering the food Um, the social workers the volunteers and on and on and on you go and i thought to myself you know it takes all these different kinds of skills blended together, working in harmony with each other, doing what they all can do to provide excellent medical care. Now, I'm trying to think of a way to describe that concept of everybody bringing their gifts and abilities and working together accomplishes something good. And I've tried to use one word to summarize that, and it's found in the title of your sermon, your notes there. You'll notice I've sort of Coin and reformulated a familiar word, the word the word involvement. I've taken its normal spelling and I've tried to respell it into a new way. I-N-V-A-L-L-V-E-M-E-N-T. Involvement. I don't know how you say it to make my point, but you get that it's a sort of strange word, a newfangled word. But the word is meant to convey something we're all familiar with. We see it and we understand the concept. But I'm just trying to see its importance here, it's the idea of having active participation of every member of a designated group of people. So they're all cooperating, they're all working together, each person performing their assigned responsibility, and they accomplish his or her particular task, and that combines then together with efforts that bring about a beneficial effect. And this term could apply this to the dynamics that operate on a football team, let's say, or it could also apply to what happens within a family. It also could apply, obviously, and does apply to the human body every day, every moment. Every member participation equals I-N-V, say it with me, A-L-L-V-E-M-E-N-T. So I would like to suggest that that Recoined word, re- re- uh, if you will, invented word, newfangled word, would be a good title for chapter three of Nehemiah. You see, because this chapter, for many of us, I didn't even read the whole thing, but if you keep going, and it's worth reading, I hope you will at some point today finish the whole chapter out, but as you read it, it's a little tedious. I agree. A lot of obscure Hebrew names, difficult to pronounce. Um, and mentioning places that you're not really familiar with as he makes his way around the wall of Jerusalem. And by the way, on the back of your notes, I guess maybe you've already seen that, there's a little map, a little diagram showing you what the wall likely would have uh, been like, And, and you can sort of find your way around as he goes from point to point. He's starting there with the northeast corner of Jerusalem, goes around counterclockwise around the wall, and here is Nehemiah recording the names of all these individuals, So many different people working and got involved in this project to rebuild the walls of the city of David. Now, rather than skip over this section of the book, I think that this particular chapter provides us with a wonderful illustration of an important New Testament principle. And here it is. I'm going to quote you a verse now from the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. Here's the verse. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing. As each part does its work. That's, that's the key. And so what I'm suggesting here is that this passage is going to show us that in order for a church to grow, let's say, the involvement concept is essential. I-N-V-A-L-L-V-E-M-E-N-T. And here's three reasons why. First of all, involvement is based on a biblical model. Hear this passage in Nehemiah 3, I think it's a testimony of the value of each person taking part in this big building project. Rather than using sweeping generalizations, Nehemiah recorded the specific names of real people who were making a real difference in the eyes of God. You see, it doesn't take long for the names of real people to soon be forgotten, as if their life had really no significance. Nobody can remember who they are. I brought with me this morning some items, just a small sampling of, we have many boxes of family history and items that uh, record the family history of the Musser side of things. Uh, It's really a treasure trove, all sorts of letters and photographs and incredible little knickknacks that people kept, and they're stored away in boxes. And um, some of these items go back to the early 1800s. Uh, of relatives on my side of the family. And uh, when my father, when he was still living, uh, used to take a box or two with him and when he would go on vacation, he would just sit there and he would work on this project of taking some of these items and he would uh, write down on the back of the photograph the names of the people in the photograph in nice, clear, legible writing. I mean, what a blessing. He has given us a tremendous... uh, uh, clarity in terms of of this uh, wonderful understanding of who these people are, Uh, but unfortunately there were some he did not label, and I think it's because he could not identify who they are. I have a photograph here of, uh, you can't see it, but I'm just going to describe it. It's a photograph of people standing on a porch, a brick home, and uh, there must be about a dozen people here, and it's a faded picture, not very easily seen. I get my little Magnifying glass and I'm looking at each one trying to figure out who in the world are these people where is this and I can't make any sense of it But someone at one time took this picture knowing all the people in that group and they thought it was valuable to, to capture their image But now those people are all gone and nobody can identify who these people are I actually have a photo album of my great grandmother born probably about 1860 And in this little book, she has all sorts of photographs of her side of the family. Uh, At the beginning, we know who those people are, but about halfway through, all sorts of photographs of people have no clue who these people are. Now, they knew who they were, but they didn't record those names, and so we have no idea of identifying who these people are. You see, it's interesting enough that these kind of things are the things that eventually find their way into what? An antique store, And so there's photographs of nameless people who somebody may want for decoration, but at one point they were significant family members that somebody knew and loved, and now they've become anonymous. And so what I think this passage is showing us here is it's reminding us that none of God's people is unimportant. None of God's people is unimportant. Take a moment and reflect on this long list of names that now has been passed down. It's likely that this was written, I'm, I'm just guessing now, it might be written about uh, five or six centuries before Christ. So here's a listing of names that long ago that we now still have in front of us. Now, we don't know who these people are, but they are significant people. And the passage is an illustration that the Bible is not a record merely of superstars. It is not merely a record of just famous celebrities but it's in its pages we find a record of ordinary people whose involvement was valued by God Years ago the Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer compiled a number of his sermons into a book and they were published he used to preach in Brie, which is a Christian retreat center in Switzerland and the title of his book, which is one of his sermons, is called, and this is in your notes, No Little People. And he's not talking about their height and stature, okay? There's, there's TV shows about little people. We're not talking about that. He says there's no little people in the sense that all of us, he says, are created by God, and every single one of us has dignity in the eyes of God. And there's no such thing as unimportant, quote unquote, little people from God's perspective, only consecrated people and unconsecrated people. There are saved people and there are unsaved people. There are regenerate people and there are unregenerate people. But every person is important in the eyes of God. And every person that Nehemiah saw as he was walking his way around that wall As he's looking at their valuable service to God, he writes their name down. Now, of course, verse 5, you run into a couple people who weren't real cooperative, not very helpful, but everybody else in that record, they're making a difference for good. And in the scriptures, we find portraits of a number of unnamed people whose record is still there. They still were significant in what they did and what they offered, they were somebody to God. In the, in the eyes of the world, they were nobodies. But in the eyes of God, they were somebody important to him. I think of, for example, uh, how many of us have, have all heard about Jesus demonstrating his deity, his supreme power, and he takes and notices there's a huge crowd of people of 5,000 men plus wives plus children, a huge number of thousands of people gathered have nothing to eat. They're in a remote place. There's not any kind of dominoes that you can call or get delivered, you know, in here. There's nothing available like that. And so what happens is a little lad who's there in the crowd offers his what? His two fish, his five loaves of bread, and Jesus takes that and multiplies it and demonstrates an incredible miracle, a work of power showing forth his deity, not to mention blessing all these people who receive a meal when they're so hungry, and they're full. It it was there, a little boy offering that. His name is never recorded, but he was there, and it was acknowledged that he was giving that to Christ. How about in Luke chapter 7? Talk about a nobody from the world's point of view. There's a nameless prostitute. Who knows what her story was of brokenness? Who knows what, who may have misused her early on in life that she would find herself in that situation, oppressed and being abused. Here she is having received from Christ a sense of his grace and his forgiveness, his love. And here she is at his feet in a crowd of people with her tears, washing his feet, and taking a very valuable ointment, which may have been associated with the proceeds from what she had earned with her immoral lifestyle. We don't know exactly if that's true or not. But she uses that, breaks it, and offers it to pour it upon his feet as a valuable expression of her love and her devotion to him. And Jesus indicates clearly that in this outward repentance that she's just demonstrating this, this expression of gratitude for his grace is such a contrast to the scorn and to the the disapproval of all these religious uptight people who are viewing her through the lens of condemning her and sort of keeping her away as if she's a shameful person. See, I believe that every member of the body of Christ has a valuable contribution to make in the service of God in this local church. Every member of Christ's body, according to 1 Corinthians 12, has received a grace, a gift from God. And it's been given to us by the Holy Spirit. And every believer, then, is, we read the New Testament, is a priest. Every member of the body of Christ, every child of God, is a minister. There's no such thing as a Christian superstar in the local church. It's a real problem in our society today. We take some local pastors, we make them into superstars, and they're publishing books, and they're all over the place, they're all over the media, and blogs, and da-da-da-da-da, and people put them on a pedestal. The problem is they're just ordinary people like you and me who have been saved by grace. They have some gifts, yes, but that does not make them a superstar, and therefore we are equal to zero, and they're equal to 100 on God's scale. Every member of Christ's body is valuable. That's what chapter 3 is trying to tell us. Every believer who's given the privileges of making a valuable contribution in building up the body of Christ. And every member's contribution is just as valuable as anyone else's, even though it may be different. You'll notice that the, there's a the work of the priests who are working on this wall. And they're working in the vicinity of the temple it was just as valuable as the work done by, let's say, verse 10, a guy named Jedediah or Malchijah in verse 14. It doesn't matter whether they're priests or whether they're just all different kinds of people, each one was making a valuable contribution. Each team of workers was equally important, and everyone who serves in this church is important, far more valuable than you would ever realize. Many of you, I'm sure, serve, and I know you do, in unassuming ways because a lot of ministry happens in places that are no longer, not just here, it happens wherever you live and whatever you're doing in the given week. Behind the scenes, there you are laboring, serving, encouraging, praying, giving words of hope, sharing Christ. It's not noticed by many people, and yet it's noticed by God. That's the key. That's the key. We live all of life before God. And here in this passage, Nehemiah is just reminding us all these people were doing what they did for God. And here's a record of what they were doing in serving a great God. The second point I want to make in terms of this concept called involvement is to notice that it's based on a real practical model. You say, what are you talking about, practical model? Well, look at verse 10. We're going to find a recurring phrase here as I read several parts of some of these verses. Verse 10. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumph, sorry, Harumph, haram haramath sorry, my Hebrew reading is weak. Uh, that fella he made repairs opposite his house. That's what I wanted to notice. Opposite his house. Verse 23. After them, Benjamin, and Hashub carried out repairs in front of their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, carried out repairs beside their house. Now, if you notice verse 28, above the horse gate, the priests carried out repairs, each in front of his house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Immer carried out repairs made in front of his house. And then verse 30 at the end, And after him, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, carried out repairs in front of his quarters. So as you read through the chapter, you get the distinct impression that Nehemiah made these assignments for the building up in the teams. He took into consideration what was most convenient, what was sort of a logical grouping of people based on where they were located in this little town. So workers were assigned to work on the wall close to in proximity to where they lived. I would suggest to you that most of us make our most valuable contributions in those areas where we live. Among the people that we know, about, among the people that we come across in our day-to-day life, that is where we're going to make a difference for Christ in his kingdom in the most significant or Measurable way. There are many ways we can get involved in other things around the world, which we should. But in terms of what we're doing here, that's a very valuable contribution that we make. And I would just like to say this: as in your notes, God's placements, God's assignments that He has made for us in terms of where we are, it's not coincidental. It's not accidental. You see, if God has placed you in a family where a number of people in your family are unsaved, then don't question for a minute why God has done that. He wants you to be the salt. He wants you to be light into their lives in accordance with His sovereign plan and design. So I'd urge you, no longer, I hope, will you question God as to why He placed those neighbors of yours behind you or beside you or across the street. Why did he place those neighbors in proximity to your house? You've been asking that question for years, especially when the music gets real loud at certain times, or the noisy kids, or you know, the guy who's tinkering around in his car making loud noise all night. You ask yourself, why are they living close to me? Some of us are still questioning why God has assigned us to that, to that seat that's right beside this student, this classmate, that I don't particularly like, and I don't want to sit beside them anymore. But this is where God has assigned you. God wants us to serve Him where He has placed us. And so, therefore, I have a phrase there in your notes if, in other words, we need to grow where God plants us, grow where God has planted us. I wonder how many of us spend considerable time contemplating 16 reasons why it would be better if we were somewhere else." I've lived here long enough to know there are many of us who do have a long list of 16 reasons we'd like to get off of this island. But those who built their homes, those who were building on this wall near their homes, they did so knowing that God had placed them there as part of His design. And some people, were there because they came from other towns and they got involved in areas there on the wall and various gates. They are there to help in areas that they needed additional help and assistance. And it's true, it is true that God sometimes will call us to leave our familiar surroundings and to serve Him elsewhere. That is true. We don't want to limit what God does and often will require of us. But I'm hoping that by reading this passage, of scripture, that God, I'm praying that God would help all of us serve Him joyfully where we have been assigned. And by doing so, that we would have eyes to see that there are opportunities that are close to hand in our realm of influence that God says, here, I want you to serve in this particular situation. It may not seem very dynamic or exciting or transformative on the outward, maybe initially, We don't have to worry about that. Just say, Lord, here I am. I'm here to serve you. Give me insight. Give me your view. Give me your compassion. Give me your love. Give me your words to share where I am planted this particular week. What a difference that would make, wouldn't it? If that were our attitude in the week ahead. Well, there's a third point here. I'm just going to keep going through this long list of names and obviously strange places. But I think there's one more Principle I want to sort of drive, derive from this text, and that is involvement is based on a gospel model, model. A gospel model. Now there's such diversity here of workers that were assembled. If you'll notice verse 1, verse 31, there were priests. There were also in verses 9, 12, 14, and 19, there are various officials who are part of this half-district of Jerusalem. They're like politicians, if you will, or government officials. Then there are the suburban officials working at the refuse gate. That sounds like a great place to work, doesn't it? Verse 14, people working at the town dump, in a sense, the place where all of the throwaways gets cast. There were also women, and I would imagine a number of members of the family, verse 12, who were involved there. There were craftsmen who dealt with various metals, perhaps, gold and wood. Verse 8, verse 31, 32, craftsmen. There were merchants, verse 32, and even people who put together and brought together various elements and oils and scents and in making perfumes, perfumers, verse 8. Okay, what's the point here? I'm just trying to illustrate and point out to you this broad spectrum of volunteers that are working together to accomplish more than they would have if it had just been one or two stonemasons or one or two... Uh, you know uh, uh, very gifted carpenters trying to complete this job it would take them forever but you got a lot of people with lots of different backgrounds and skills coming together and do you know that god brought about what he brought about with all these diverse people working together carrying these heavy stacks of stones and as they're cutting and setting a piece all the, setting in place all these boards and rebuilding these these doors and things at the gates He brought about something more than just walls and gates. He brought about a sense of togetherness, a sense of unity of spirit among them. Even though they have such diversity among them, there's a sense of having the same vision. They want to see this wall go up. They want to see this city restored. Something truly marvelous in the eyes of God was taking place more than just mortar and boards. It wasn't just walls and gates now, replacing what had been burned down, God was rebuilding His people as they ministered beside one another, encouraging each other, praying for one another, defending each other, helping and and trying to help bear that load together. So that leads me then to this observation that diversity and unity are celebrated in God's kingdom. Unity and diversity. Diversity. See, God loves diversity. And we're not talking about politically correct diversity. That is a word that's thrown around a lot now to mean all kinds of agendas here. What I'm talking about here is God loves things that are different and variety in a sense. You say, well, how do you know? Well, look at the human race. Look at the row you're sitting on. Look at the people who are sitting near you. And just realize there is differences. There is variety all around us. Now, I took a real quick moment here, went online, and I just tried to find out how many different kinds of species of different types of living creatures there are in this world. I just have a few sampling for you. You think God likes variety? Birds. Number of species of birds. Are you ready? We're not talking about a thousand. How about 10,000? about fish? 30,000 species. I always, when I get these numbers, I say, yeah, right, who counted them all? That's, that's what I always think to myself. But anyway, that's what it says. <clears throat> these are all rounded up, rounded down. These are rounded numbers, okay? Uh, reptiles, over 8,000 different kinds of reptiles. Insects, which is probably more than any of us would ever want or imagine, 950,000. Different kind of insects. Oh, sorry. Um, Plants. 300,000. You think God likes variety? Absolutely. Absolutely He does. And as we've looked out at our bird feeder, we love to see different kinds of birds. Thank God there's more than just sparrows. I mean, I like sparrows, but there's so many other birds to enjoy which we now have a red-bellied woodpecker, which is amazing. We're really enjoying him having his feast there every day. The point is this. Each one is unique. God loves diversity, each one of a kind. But when it comes to people, we may look a little different. We may speak a little differently. People think I'm from Georgia sometimes around here. I am not from Georgia. But I do feel like sometimes I'm in a foreign land uh, when I hear some of the accents around here, but it's all right. It's wonderful to have. We have people, when I get to people coming into our church, I'll ask them at a new members' class, tell us where you're born. We have people who are born in other countries. It's a wonderful thing. And we come together, each one making their own unique contribution. You see, non moral differences among us are to be accepted. We're not to try to cookie-cut, and make everybody exactly the same. We don't want to do that. That's not what the kingdom is all about. You see, some of us wish we had and could make people into the kind of people we want them to be. For example, many children, I'm sure if you can relate to this, some of those who, who are young, you look at your parents, you say, oh, I just long for my parents to be different. I just want them to be not the way they are. And so we have a long list of things that, oh, if they would just stop doing this, they were this way. Or some of us who maybe secretly, maybe you don't say this, but you secretly are saying, oh, I just wish my spouse was different. The traits that you at one time admired when you were engaged, you now have come to resent. You know, it's typically you got the, the woman who's quiet and he's outgoing or she's outgoing and he's quiet and... He's cheap. He saves his money. He's a tightwad. And she loves to spend her money. Their money. Whatever. What's left of it. And and she may be neat and tidy. And he's a slob. You get the idea. Could it be that God is saying, the way to help us to learn, to cooperate with somebody who is different than you, is to learn to accept and see that they do have strengths, they do have qualities that commend and they're valuable to bring into the equation. There's something that we gain by cooperating with somebody who's different. It can be a means of sanctification that God is trying to get us to change a little bit, not to be so rigid, everything has to be perfectly in place. No, I live with a person who doesn't live that way. Then we can find some sort of way of working this thing together so that we both are cooperating to accomplish God's ways. It's interesting when you think about what God has done in the gospel, differences mean we don't have to compete if we really understand the gospel. The gospel affirms that we who at one time had no part in Christ have been now adopted into a family we didn't by nature belong to. And we don't really deserve to be a part of this family, but God has placed his love on us and he has given us new life in Christ. He has has made us his own as we come and repent and as we receive by faith what Christ has done in our behalf. Then we receive all of what Christ really is entitled to. His perfect obedience is then put on our account and all of our sin is put on Christ. And therefore we enjoy this amazing acceptance before God. That's what the gospel brings us into. And so we, as we read earlier in Galatians 3, as we read, worked through that book, Galatians 3:23 says, "For you all are sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. The word all there is key because he's talking about all sorts of people who made up that church. For all of you have been clothed yourselves in Christ, And there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free man, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that there aren't social differences among us or some sort of racial differences or any kind of sexual distinctions among Christians, but he's saying we're equally accepted before God. So therefore, if that is true, we understand the gospel. There's no need then to be competing against each other. There's no need to be comparing ourselves with each other. Oh, look at that person! Oh my goodness, look at that! I can't believe they are allowed to do that. Or look at that—they got to do, look what they were asked to do. I'm never asked to do that. There's no need to be jealous or to covet what another member of the body of Christ may have or be able to do. The gospel says that when we are joined to Christ by faith, we gain full acceptance. We are elevated. We're brought up. We're given the same privileges and benefits, all through Christ and what He's done for us. And therefore, that's why Paul is so upset when he writes in the New Testament to the church there in Corinth that is split up in all these little subsections and people who say, "Well, I'm in this group, and I'm in this group, and I'm in this group, and I'm in this group." And Paul's like, "Come on, that is just ruining the gospel." See, factions and divisions and schisms among believers in a local church, they act as a corrosive agent to the gospel unity that God seeks to have among his people. Instead of easy, cooperative movement taking place as members of the body of Christ, you get essentially squeaky, uh, immovable, or rusted, weakened fellowship among people who therefore have lost a sense of the preciousness of what christ has given them and therefore the distinctions between them become walls between them which tends to undermine the fact that we all have received grace from christ we're all equally in need of christ we're all equally amazed at grace and so what i say to you as i conclude here think thinking through all these different kinds of people working around on that city wall is that this wall was making clear at some point who is in among the people of God and who's not. In a sense, those of us who are Christians, those of us who are Christ followers, the real basis and the foundation of our cooperative unity with each other, who are diverse, people who are different than us, the real thing that draws us together in our common bond is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel says this. Look at 1 John 1.3. As we conclude, First 1 John 1, three, page 1446. John writes these believers, and he says, he's writing about what we've seen and heard. He's going to proclaim that one to you also, that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that the gospel provides to us fellowship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the blessing we all share together. And that fellowship, which is an amazing privilege, is translated into fellowship with other people who are diverse and different from you, who do not have the same way of looking at life, the same practices, the same uh, way of, of doing everyday life. And yet we have a fellowship with them, a shared life together, Around Jesus Christ and what the gospel has done in our hearts and lives, and therefore there is unity that's already in in existence because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So, as you read the New Testament, instead of thinking us as all unique and different and, and we really have a whole lot not in common, remember there are many sheep in God's flock. There's one shepherd. There are many parts of the body of Christ. There's one head. There are many stones that have been incorporated into the building that has become the church. It only has one cornerstone. There are many branches that are joined together into the one vine, Jesus Christ. There are many children in the family of God. There's one Father. Let's make sure we understand, preserve, and maintain that unity and celebrate the uniqueness that each person has in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you appreciate and you value each person here. We thank you, Father, that you are the God who sees us not as a social security number or one of a certain socioeconomic grouping, but Lord, we are unique individuals, one of a kind, valuable people who bear your image. And Father, I pray that you would encourage some of us who feel as though we are nobodies in the eyes of the world. We feel like we have no value, no significance. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see how the gospel has lifted us up and given us such a privilege and such a blessing to be joined with Christ by faith and to be able to participate in what you're doing in this wonderful work of redemption that involves things around the globe. And I pray, Lord, that you'd continue to strengthen our sense of common vision and common cooperative spirit we would understand the importance of working with people who are different than us for a common goal. Help us, Lord, in our laboring for the gospel together that we might truly enjoy fellowship with you and enjoy fellowship with each other in a way that celebrates the gospel, celebrates the wonders of being children of God, adopted because of grace. So, Lord, I pray that from this text of scripture, we're all sorts of hard-to-pronounce names in strange places may be used by your Spirit to encourage us as individuals, as a part of this local assembly, to know that you are the God who promotes, encourages, and celebrates involvement. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.